0: Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the person who has an extensive interest in media businesses and in my spare time, I want to know how the media space is changing in Asia Pacific. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Alan Soon, co-founder and CEO of The Splice Media. Welcome Alan again and it's great to have you back on the podcast.
1: Hey Bernard, it's great to be back again. So since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, I think we last spoke, it must have been about two years ago. It's been quite a long journey in those two years or so. We added a co-founder, we've added partners to Splice. So I think when we first spoke, you know, Splice was really a consultancy business only. And now we've kind of expanded into reporting. We're doing workshops. We're starting our first event as well in a couple of months in Chiang Mai. So there are a whole bunch of things that have been going for us in this space, and we're really excited by it. Our main subject of the day is to talk about what Splice Media does and also the upcoming
0: Splice Beta Conference. And what I also want to talk about is the trends on media and journalism in Southeast Asia. Because I know you have been looking at the space very carefully and you have written many interesting feature articles about people who are actually trying to do innovation in the newsrooms itself. So to start, maybe to help my audience... Can you reintroduce Splice Media and now the mission and vision
1: and how has it evolved since our last conversation? Sure. The mission is is very similar to what it was. Our goal is to help drive the transformation of this industry, right? And we believe that a lot of work needs to go into getting not just traditional media companies moving forward, but also media startups. How can we help the small guys move forward, right? I think there are a lot of great ideas that are out there. And, you know, if we want to see a sustainable transformation of the industry, we need to get behind media startups and this is what we're all about. So the stories that you see on Splice, we cover what's going on in that space. We talk about what media startups are doing, what interesting ideas have come up in that space. We're interested in people who are taking a risk in testing something new, you know, prototyping something new. And this is very important for us to see. So the conference that we're putting together, actually we're not even calling it a conference, we're calling it a festival. <laughs> we're doing this because we want to see a celebration of what's going on in this space. We believe that, you know, in the past couple of years, it, and you know this very well, the narrative around media has been so negative that it's a lose-lose situation for everybody, right? We think that instead of having this narrative of media is dead, media is dying, media has lost trust, you know, there's actually a really positive story to be told in a region like this. We're seeing some really interesting media startups that are coming up, and that's what we're trying to do at Splice Beta, our festival. We're bringing together a whole bunch of really interesting media startups as a way to celebrate what they're doing we're bringing together the founders, the entrepreneurs behind them. We're also bringing together the investors so that they can see what's happening in that space as well. So I know
0: that you want to talk about the new festival, Spice Beta. Can you talk about where is it
1: going to be happening and who's the intended audience for this conference? Sure, yeah. So this is happening in Chiang Mai on May 1st to 3rd. So it's just a few weeks away. You know, we're, <laughs> we're trying to get the program together. We're very excited by the speakers who agreed to come to the festival What we want to do is to bring together media entrepreneurs, people who have ideas around this space, people who have ideas that they want to test. You know, what are your prototyping ideas that you have as a media startup? We're bringing together young journalists who are also in the space who care about where media is going because, you know, they're trying to build a career in media. And that career has changed tremendously. The jobs to be done in newsroom are very different from what it was, you know, 20 years ago when I started my career we're also bringing together the investors who've been backing some of these startups over the past few years. We're also bringing together academics, you know, so we can have a conversation around what are some of these new jobs that are coming up in this space and whether are we equipping young people with that capability. So we're super excited about what we're trying to do in Chiang Mai. You know, it's a media festival. We're also thinking about it in terms of our district, right? So if you've been to Chiang Mai, This is actually in the Niman district where you find a whole bunch of great media startups, you find digital nomads, you find co-work spaces. And we think that this is a really cool way to have a festival instead of, you know, your standard hotel (laughs) conference room where everyone's cold and everyone's got bad coffee. (laughs) We think that this could be a more fun way to talk about and to talk about it honestly, you know, where media is going and to celebrate some of these interesting startups in Asia. And I have to be honest here, so we actually going to have a promo
0: code on Analyze Asia. If you just go to the Splice Beta Festival and just type the promo code Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia, I think you can get a little bit of discount. Am I
1: right to say that? Absolutely, of course. Yeah, so go to splicebeta.com, buy your tickets there, put in the promo code. So I want to come back to the conversation then. Who
0: are the interesting speakers that are going to come to this festival? I mean, I saw some names
1: from Chasing Media, new narrative, Malaysia Kinney. That's right. So like, you know, Malaysia Kinney is interesting to us because I call them the granddaddy of media startups in Asia, right? These guys have been around for 20 years. It's been a long slog for them trying to build a, a media business that can sustain itself. And that's what they've done. They've also contributed to a change of government a year ago just by the sheer weight of their reporting, right? So they've shown resilience. They've shown an ability to to build a business model that sustains itself. And that's why we're celebrating them. New narrative, on the other hand, is fairly new, as you know probably I think about two years old, they're trying to report on what's going on in Southeast Asia in terms of culture and history and society. And they're using interesting formats like podcasts and comics as well. The other interesting thing about them is that they're largely supported by crowdfunding, which is really amazing to see. And along the same lines, you know, we have Hong Kong Free Press. Tom Grundy is coming from Hong Kong Free Press. He launched Newsroom in 2015 using a crowdfunding model as well. So that was interesting to see even back then. We also have interesting people like Simon Park, who works at Mediati in Korea. And this is Korea's first media startup incubator, right? So they understand what's going on in terms of where the industry is going, how do you find product market fit, how do you get some of these startups into the first round of funding, how do you get them trained and connected? Speaking of funding as well, you know, we have Joey Chung, who raised a Series C round for the News Lens in Taiwan. So that's an interesting one as well. You know, we're getting Joey to talk about how they managed to pull that off. As you know, the media startup space is a very difficult one when it comes to attracting investment. There's this view that's persistent in the industry that media companies are not worth investing in, right? So here we have a company that's secured a Series C round. And so I think this is really exciting to see. We also have, you know, some of the bigger, more entrenched players like SPH. SPH is sending Gaurav, who's their chief product officer, their very first chief product officer to beta to talk about how they think about products. You know, how do you build a strategy around products? So Gaurav used to be running products at Grab and now he's at SPH. So that makes it super exciting. We also have SEMP there. They're sending Malcolm Ong, who is their product head as well. So he'll be talking about how products are the center of the transformation that we're seeing at SEMP. So we've got really an interesting mix of very new media startups to very old media startups to also you know traditional media companies. So have you seen any new interesting business models in media startups across Southeast Asia? Yeah. So what's interesting about media startups is that very often you see them coming online And they know exactly the kind of community that they want to serve, right? So if you look at, say, Magdalene in Indonesia, this is a a media startup that is going after a community that cares about feminism, cares about gender issues. And so they are doing a really great job reporting and building a community around that, right? So, you know, it's not incredibly sexy from a business model point of view, but the fact is what they've done is to find a community that they really care about that they know how to report on they know how to build something around right I think that's very important to, to get right what 's happened in this space is that while we 've been watching some of the bigger players like say BuzzFeed you know zoom and then you know fall we 've been caught up with this whole notion that media needs to be built at scale and what we're seeing what we 're seeing out here is that because The barrier to entry to creating a media startup is so much lower than it ever was. We're seeing more of these types of players come up, people who know how to serve a community that cares about that specific subject matter, right? So I think that's the kind of stuff that's really exciting and very important. We've got Namka from Remo Media, who's based in Mongolia. And and what he wants to do, for example, is to build a community that can challenge misinformation. He wants to build a digital literacy program that works in schools. So, you know, we're seeing a really interesting shift away from the traditional media model, which was always about mass advertising and therefore mass scale, to really understanding what your community wants from you and delivering it to them and therefore building a business model around that.
0: Is it part of the rationale because the content business is actually commoditized and that's why finding the new business model and disruption is actually the key to how you can unlock new media startups in the region then?
1: Well, that's right. I think, you know, what we've seen over the last five years, and, you know, this is not a new trend, it's just an ongoing thing, is that we're seeing this this erosion of mass media, right? Mass media was always meant to be one person in the newsroom, usually the chief editor who makes a decision on what everybody needs to read and see. And based on that, you know, assume that everybody cares about the same stuff. And what we've seen in in digital, and this is really the promise of digital and the internet, is that you are able to serve very specific long-tail communities that you could never have done with the mass media model. And so you're basically seeing an unbundling of this space. Instead of just having one thing that you think that people care about, we now are able to create 100, 200, 300 different types of vertical categories, very niche topics that people really want to engage with.
0: And does it mean that there is an unbundle between discovery and curation
1: of media content in the business then? Absolutely. Correct. You know, one of the best examples of this long tail is YouTube. You can go to YouTube any day of the week, anytime you want, and find a specific video that answers your specific question. So actually, coincidentally, just about an hour ago, I had to get my aircon fixed as well. You know, I I went on YouTube to figure out how do I reset the remote control (laughs) for, for my Mitsubishi aircon, you know? And there were at least five videos there that all talked about the same thing. Like how do you reset this aircon? Which is really quite amazing, right? So that's a kind of long-tail content that the internet strives at, right? This is really the power of the internet, to create as many subject lines as you want. And this is something that big mass media companies can't work around, right? So the discovery of this stuff needs to be platform-led, unfortunately, at this stage. It needs to be curated largely by serving up exactly what people want, right? You need to be able to establish strong intent, clear intent, and making sure that people get the content that they want.
0: I want to go back to the business model side. So have you seen, I mean, in the US, they have very mega trends. Like for example, there was two, three years ago when we thought there was pivot to video, now it's pivot to paywall. And then you know, they're going to be pivoting to something else. I don't care. But have you seen any interesting new ideas that come across other than subscription that seems to be maybe the clearest way to build the direct transaction between the customer and
1: the media outlet then? Yeah, I think, you know, the stuff around memberships is important because it's it's answering that question, right? The question is, are you giving your community something that they really want? It's as simple as that, right? And if you're giving people what they want, someone will pay for it, whether it's the the end user or, you know, someone who wants to pay for access to that community. So some of the interesting things that, that we've seen in this space is just this creation of vertical media companies over time. Vertical media companies are are generally unsexy. Uh, (laughs) We consider ourselves a vertical media company because we're a B2B service that reports on media for media people. So in that sense, we're not ever going to achieve the kind of scale that that we've seen in mass media. But what's happening in this space is that you're seeing interesting little media startups that come up who know how to identify exactly the kind of audience they want to go after. I recently stumbled on on one in, in the U.S., which was really interesting. They only do one thing, which is to report on what's happening in seniors' homes. Not in terms of you know issues in seniors' homes, but more in terms of describing the business around senior accommodation and, and senior living. This is the kind of stuff that exists out there that most people don't think about because they don't you know, normally run across this type of content. But if you were in that stage of life, or if you ran a business that was catering toward an older generation, and of course, you know, an older generation is able to pay for this stuff as well. You're then creating a community, and you're finding ways to to monetize that. Monetizing could be as simple as you know, as events. It could be you know, affiliate deals. It could be building a content network around that. You know, there are so many ways to, to serve a community and the only way for us to get there is to really embrace the fact that the internet is meant to be a long tail delivery system. I don't want to be mean, but I still think that
0: advertising is a pretty big business model for some of the media outlets out there. Sure. I agree with that too. I think my question wants to go into thinking about how are media outlets that requires advertising as a business model, are they still at the mercy of aggregators such as Google and Facebook, the Duopoly in terms of distribution?
1: Yeah, so exactly. And this is one of the problems that is inherent, right? The assumption that you can create a piece of content, throw as many eyeballs on it as possible, and because you're throwing all these eyeballs, you're able to monetize that page for more. That's, that's the assumption that exists in that space. That's the assumption that we've made almost from day one when mass media was built that is not sustainable in the future just because people are spending the time elsewhere. It's as simple as that, right? I think that the cost to reaching your audience on those platforms will go up. There's just no two ways about it. Unless, of course, you're speaking to a very niche audience. And again, you know, this is where we go back to communities, right? If you are able to reach that community with a very specific targeting and you're reaching an audience that no one else cares about, right? That's how you're able to keep your prices down, your costs down, in terms of targeting. But if you're going for a mass audience that is demographically targeted, then you're gonna miss some of these opportunities that are out there. It's a never ending game if you're gonna go for a mass media model and you know your goal is to move the needle by adding another zero to your pay street number, right? That's a no win situation. The acquisition cost for audience is always gonna keep going up in that space.
0: I want to go back to the traditional media outlets. They are also starting their own transformation In their case, what other steps are they taking to deal with their own disruption? Because I think the distribution is kind of taken away from them by Google and Facebook. So they're no longer the
1: gatekeepers to that distribution channels itself. That's right. I think the important thing is to stir a conversation around utility, right? What is media meant to do? And I think this is where a lot of the larger companies have a hard time with because it's very hard to answer that question for them. Like, why do you exist? How do people use you? right? If all you're doing is reporting on stuff that not enough people care about, you know, and even less are able to act on, then you're not providing that utility. For example, you know, the moment you unlock your phone these days, you're bombarded with all these different notifications. There are so many things for you to do. You have jobs to be done. You have people to respond to. You have things that you want to find out. All of these things exist in that space, right? And I think that if you are a big media company, and you haven't figured out your purpose and your utility to your audience, then I think you're in a very difficult spot. So some of the interesting changes that we've seen in this space have come from, say, you know, South China Morning Post, which is into its third year now, I think, of transforming itself. And basically, they're unbundling what was the newspaper. The traditional newspaper came with all these multiple sections in there. Were these sections useful to people? You know, in many ways, we don't know. All we know was that people wanted to pay to run ads in those sections. And so that's why we have those sections. But if you were to take a few steps back and ask yourself, you know, what are some of the things that people want? How can we be useful to this specific audience group and how do we build new products for them? And, you know, if you look at some of the new products that have come out of the SMP, I think, you know, that's pretty impressive, right? So that's the kind of transformation that we want to see, right? We want there to be a strong product-centric approach first where you have someone asking the very basic question, is this product useful? How is it useful? And once you're able to figure out its utility, then, you know, talk about monetization. That comes later, I think. I think
0: there's another question that comes in play is regulation. Yeah. Given that, We have a lot of changes in government and it seems to move towards a slightly authoritarianism type of governments these days in Asia Pacific. How do media outlets actually tackle against regulation and governments which do not support free press? I mean, the Philippine situation is probably the best example.
1: Sure. But, you know, also to be fair, this isn't new to Asia, right? We've always had governments that were never media friendly to begin with. So in many ways, some of these things are an extension of that. I think what's unique about, say, the Philippines or even India is that you have populist governments in place. These governments are very popular, whether some of us like them or not. And I think that's one of the things to call out, right? you're up against governments that are very popular and who have very strong views about where media should be and the role of media in these places. So, you know, in terms of regulation, I think what's going to happen in this space, and and I think we're seeing a lot of this already, right? Governments wanting more access to information and data that the large platforms have. They want the ability to take down content that they don't agree with. So a lot of that In a way, it's not new. They've always been able to assert that pressure, whether you were a newspaper or a broadcaster or whatever, right? The only difference is that now you're dealing with a big multinational tech company that has its own rules, and that's where you're seeing that friction.
0: And what are your current perspectives on thinking about things like investigative journalism across Asia Pacific? I mean, it can be specific to even Southeast Asia, which
1: you operate in. Yeah, I think, you know, investigative journalism is important work. It's something that sheds light on what's really going on. It's something that provides insights into how society works in ways that don't get covered elsewhere. The struggle with investigative journalism, and that's the case, I think, you know, everywhere, is that it's hard to make that sustainable as a business on itself, because to do an investigation, it could take months, it could take a year, two years, three years, so some of these things take a long time to to build out and that's where the struggle is you know how are you going to be able to fund that project until it's done i think that is important work that needs to be done the question is how do we how do we measure the impact of that and in a lot of these cases i mean there's great investigative work that's being done all the time they just don't see the light of day if they don't see the light of day then they don't have that ability to change society and change governments if that's a goal of of that project. So I think there's a real need for that. I also feel like, you know, there needs to be a better way of connecting those with people who are able to take that information and act on it.
0: To dive deeper, right, I see like three levels. Mm. The first level is that I think investigative journalism is still best funded by multinational corporations. I think what Wall Street Journal did with the 1MDB scandal in Malaysia, that was one aspect. I think the second level is the ability to use technology to do investigative journalism at scale, which I think China is leading the way sure. with some of the analytics firms with one this example of Xiaoshan BB who actually broke two scandals mm. of two internet companies basically faking reviews, faking right. all the data out there. Yes. Right. I mean, using just simple AI, they could actually get there. And then there is the level three which is where you see newsrooms all over the world collaborate together. I'm talking about the Panama Papers, where it's not just New York Times. You need the Guardian, you need the Spiegel, and you collaborated with every press. I think there are 53 press outlets that actually dig into their papers. I call it collaborative journalism in a sense. So in these three levels, do you see... Parts and pieces are actually starting to happen outside of the China US sphere or even Europe as well?
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of of this work that's already been done. You know, Philippines is a great example of having that tradition. There's a small media startup called Verifiles in Manila that basically does that. They take one specific topic and they go deep on that. And, you know, Reply itself has been doing its own investigative work, right? So there's a lot of that that already exists out there. You know, again, it's a matter of finding a way to connect that with the right audience that's able to make an impact on that, right? And, you know, sometimes we just don't see these stories because they are very local and, you know, that's where that community is, Right. So I think there's definitely a need for more of this kind of stuff. I've also been keeping an eye on some of the data projects that have come up in this region as well. There's been a push for open data. There's a regional project that's being worked on as well for Southeast Asia around open data, making governments a part of that structure. I think that's really important. So you know, with open data comes the opportunity for you to take that and interpret it, right? I think AI is useful for spotting trends, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to turn that into a story. And I think that's where I'd like to see more of more the resources going to.
0: Given that you have worked with also different traditional media newsrooms in the region, what I really want to tease out is your thoughts. I mean, I don't want to beat on Facebook, but Facebook is kind of becoming subconsciously an enabler for certain governments to be able to put misinformation, like for example, in Philippines and Myanmar. I think the question that really comes to mind is media literacy rates. Where do you think that we can actually educate more people to be more critical about what are the real information out there as against the fake information that's going on? Because I think ultimately it's not a responsibility of just journalists breaking the story. It's more of also the people that needs to be educated as well.
1: Well, that's true. But I think when we talk about misinformation, sometimes we think of this as being a recent thing, and it's really not a recent thing. I think what we're seeing here now is that misinformation is happening at a scale that we've never seen before. And the ability to target that misinformation is bigger than it's ever been, right? So, you know, for example, companies have always been making false claims in their advertising right this has always been a part of it what you're now able to do is that you as an average joe you can take that same information and find ways to target it and to build a cohesive system of generating that misinformation and helping it spread so i mean advertising is one part of it right and this has always been there governments have always spread misinformation themselves this has always been the case where a government has a certain point of view that they want to drive and they make sure that they find a way to, to get it out there. I think the heart of your question is, how do you help people be more skeptical about everything that they see and read? You know, and I think this is a very basic tenant of education these days, and it's not just education, right? So it's like all of us need to be aware that anytime we come across any kind of, of messaging on a digital platform, there's a high chance that someone thought about how to get it out to you, right? Right. So start there. Ask yourselves that simple question. What do people want me to do with this information? Who is behind this? So I think that that's an important thing to solve. But the sad thing is that these things do take a while. It's hard to track impact in that space. You know, while there's been concerted effort on the part of all the platforms to reduce the speed and the reach of some of this content, you know, the fact is it's it's very hard to be able to say who saw it, what did they do with it? Were they skeptical about it? Were they not? You know, I think that's where that struggle is. So I think this is a question probably we will have to take
0: to another time. And Alan, many thanks for coming on the show. And I think it's always good to hear your insights on what is actually going on in the media space as far as for myself, who's always locked in the tech media, but actually there's media much, much bigger and covers the everyday life. So in closing, I want to ask you, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything which recently made an impact to your work and personal life?
1: You know, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. I think the, the one that got me most excited, you know, and to binge uh, listening is The Dropout, which is the story of Theranos, the story of Elizabeth Holmes and how she was able to deceive as many people as she did over that period of time. It tells you a lot about how not just how Silicon Valley works, but but the way we all want to believe that great technology is possible and great technology can change our lives instantly, right? we're all buying into that dream. So I think that was a really useful podcast just to, you know, to kind of push me back a few steps so that I would rethink you know, my assumptions of what technology is and what we're buying into, right? It's very easy to say, hey, that's great technology out there. You know, everything could change. But then at the same time, you know, some of the stuff is fake. <laughs> and there's a whole ecosystem out there that supports that. So I recommend that.
0: And I want to recommend a book called The Merchants of Truth by Joe Abramson, who's a former editor of the New York Times. Although there's some controversies relating to the right. sources of that book, I only recommend the reader to only read the sections pertaining to New York Times and Washington Post and see how they have actually changed the trajectory. I think although some of parts of the book may be disputed, but I think at least on the mainstream press, side, I thought it was pretty interesting even from the way how Jeff Bezos actually resuscitated Washington Post. So
1: my last question, how do my audience find you? Oh, very simple. TheSpliceNewsroom.com is where you'll find us. And there's a link there where you can just drop me an email. You can also find me on Twitter at AlanSoon, Soon, A-L-A-N-S-O-O-N. I respond to everything that comes through. <laughs> Maybe not immediately, but I do. <laughs> You can
0: Google me at Bernard Leong, and this podcast is co-produced by Caroline and myself. And we are now being found in a couple of places, Spotify, Himalaya, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast and iTunes. And of course, give us a five-star rating. I know that my audience don't like to go and click these five stars, but you will help us a lot in discovery, a star on overcast and pocket test. And of course, most important, tweet to me your feedback. So once again, Alan, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Thank you for putting this together. Appreciate it. Talk soon.